1: because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Well, hello, my friend. It's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. It's a gorgeous day here in Colorado for a February day. It's going to be uh, 60 degrees and sunny, a little snow on the mountains. And I don't know what part of the world you're in, but I know you aren't uh, enjoying the kind of weather I'm enjoying.
0: It's not bad where I am. And I started the day with a mojito, so that's always good. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, I guess that's a different form of sunshine for you, John. <laughs>
2: <So>
0: <laughs> they say that you should have a glass of citrus in the morning. We, As a country, we've been drinking orange juice for a long time. It's just lime juice. Flavored a little differently. Yeah, you keep thinking that way. <laughs> It it helps brighten the day. Yes, I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. Well, I want to remind our our listeners that this show was being brought to you by PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, as well as Avempco Insurance. And if you find yourself renewing a policy or buying an airplane and you need a policy, or if you're a flight instructor, uh, give Evemco a call. Uh, Their number is 888-879-0389, or you can reach them on the web at avemco.com. And if you mention flight safety detectives, you get a 5% discount.
1: Great. Well, John, I know that uh, in our past shows, recent show, we were talking about the event that took place with the United Airlines Boeing 777 in the skies over Colorado, and an engine that let go and started raining parts down in an area that just happens to be right near my office, and uh, of course the flight path back to DIA took that airplane right over the top of where I live along the foothills. So, uh, you know, it uh, it starts to hit close to home. And then you and I, of course, have been following this event, uh, you know, since it happened because uh, there were some real issues that we believe need to be developed or should be followed up on by the NTSB in its investigation. We've tried to correct some of the misinformation, misunderstandings, and we've tried to also educate folks on uh, what's going to take place in this process. But as much as I depend on your expertise, we always need another expert to try and clarify some of those things that you and I brought up, and it's always good to have another voice who who's in the business, who has that level of expertise. So I'm gonna turn it over to you because you found us one of those experts to talk about uh, engine cowlings and some of the issues that go along with certification.
0: Well, the person we have with us today, his name is Mike Borfus. I've known him, it it, uh, looks like now uh, over 30 years. He used to live in New England, not far from where I lived. And uh, he worked for the FAA in the engine directorate. And I tried to set him straight all those years, but (laughs) he he couldn't do it. Yeah, Mike, I knew it it was
2: coming,
1: Mike. He does that. He is the godfather of keeping us all humble and on the straight and narrow.
0: The trouble is that swings both ways, guys. (laughs) So Mike has worked for the FAA in certification as well as Boeing and various jobs amongst the certification folks there. So I had some questions about the cowling. You know, I knew a little bit about it, but I thought maybe it would help myself and Greg and our audience to hear from somebody who has lived a little bit in that environment and can help shed some light on this subject. And one of the things that I, one of the discussions I had with Mike before we started this program was looking at the pictures of the initial pictures of debris fields, we have that big nose inlet ring that's sitting next to a person's house in their pickup truck. And it seems to be split nice and clean. And consensus seems to be that that was a fan blade that cut that. It's interesting because in the first hearing that the NTSB had, the chairman was very, very pointed in saying this was not an uncontained engine failure, technically was not an uncontained engine failure, so it's not clear what he why he was doing that, saying it that way, but most people in this business, when they look at the what happened there they believe this to be an uncontained engine failure, so yet to see what the official determination is going to be, but it does seem strange to call it an uncontained engine failure I mean a contained engine failure excuse me so with that being said, let's just go in and get some explanations of the cowling. We know the cowling is not the responsibility of the engine manufacturer. they just deliver the engine, and the cowling is the responsibility of the airframer. So welcome, Mike. Welcome to the show with that little preface, and uh, Greg and I are going to grill the hell out of you.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Hi guys, thanks for the invite and uh... I think I'm happy to be here.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, (laughs) let's see how you feel at the end of this little interview. (laughs) Well, you know, the big thing is, Mike, is trying to get an understanding. There's a lot of chatter, as John had talked about. Both in Facebook and on uh, you know social media, and of course in the mainstream media, about this engine cowling and uh, and the fact that it did come off. It, it basically the entire cowling came off, and that's what came raining down over these neighborhoods. And that was, of course, the big concern because the pieces were very large and and that kind of thing. What is basically from the FAA certification standpoint, and of course Boeing is the manufacturer. What is the, the premise and the regulatory requirements for these engine collings? Because it's obvious they need to stay on because they serve a function. And John and I talked about this, and we'll talk to you about it, is that the fire suppression system is very dependent on the calling staying intact. Now we have a cowling that comes up. What are the requirements for, you know, what kind of damage that cowling can, can sustain? And still be acceptable under current certification?
2: That's kind of a loaded question, I have to admit, because uh, there are three things that the Boeing company is interested in. Uh, first is efficiency, you know, for miles per per pound, you might say. Second is uh, fire suppression, and third is drainage. And, you know, two and three are obviously required by by regulation. Number one more of a more of an optional sort of thing. So that's what Boeing is really more interested in than anything else. They have to show that uh, the cowling is is going to contain uh, fire, you might say, assuming it's intact, and uh, also has to have drainage because if there's any any possible compartment that may collect especially flammable fluids, it has to be able to drain. So they have drainage tests, they have they don't actually like fires, but uh, what they do is they do an analysis for the most part for fire. And there's going to be uh, some sort of fire suppression system there as well, typically. In many cases, where you really have, might have a problem.
1: And everything you're talking about isn't just targeted to Boeing. It's targeted to all aircraft manufacturers that put out a turbojet or turbofan type engine that have an engine calling and, and that kind of thing. You know, it may be tailored to a specific aircraft, but the overall premise of the calling is is what you just described. Right.
2: Yeah. In fact, just FYI, guys, I uh, I did a little bit of a word search in part 25, transport airplane certification versus 33, which is for engines. And uh, I found the word nacelle in part 33 zero times and it shows up in part 25, 21 times. And calling is about the same between 33 and 25. But, yeah, it's absolutely required by regulation in Part 25 everywhere you go, especially U.S. and Europe, and uh, there's no getting around it. You have got to deal with these things. If it turns out there's something, an area inside the cowling that could have a fire or may require leakage, it must be dealt with, period, end of story. Regarding, uh, you know, engine issues, that's for those hooked up in the engine manufacturer. As far as uncontained failures, the cowling isn't really obligated or obliged to be involved in that. They care, but uh, it just would be a bit much. It's easier to try to contain it within the engine.
1: And I think that's a a very good point that you just brought up because uh, there again has been a lot of misunderstanding. Everybody thinks that you know Boeing builds the entire airplane, including the engine, which John and I have tried to diffuse and talk about the separation. Mm -hmm. And with regard to the nacelle, just like you said, or the engine cowling, it is while it is a functional part of the aircraft from the standpoint of uh, enhancing aircraft performance, because it streamlines, uh, if you will, all the rough edges around an engine. It really does not serve a containment purpose in the event that you have a catastrophic event, such as the loss of a fan blade and or turbine blades or uh, compressor blades, and they evacuate
2: the engine. Right. Right. Yeah, I went through 25 and I'm looking for, to outline the regulations that, that are required for the airframer. And the regulations, I'm not, not going to call out numbers, but the titles are fire protection, fuel system components, oil radiators, drainage and ventilation, fire zones, fire extinguishing systems, and then there's an ETOPS issue there as well, which is more reliability than anything else.
1: and when it comes to the nacelle we know that these nacelles just like every other part of the aircraft and John talked about it on a previous show with the uh, design of the fan or yeah the fan blade being hollow and a lot of that is to save weight as well as you know function and form with the nacelle the nacelles are the same thing or the engine cowlings are the same thing they're built of lightweight honeycomb fiberglass type material because they really serve a streamlining purpose They don't require any kind of Kevlar belts or any kind of strapping to keep them intact around the engine. Should a failure like this happen? And of course, there's a a lot of discussion. Well, should it? Should these things be made of other materials or a different form so that they do stay on and they don't come raining down on neighborhoods in an event like this?
2: That's a fair enough question. I think that. it would be a difficult thing to do. I think there would be some resistance, especially from the air framers. If you, if you take a look at a video of an engine blade containment test, you can see that the inlet has incredible distortion for maybe a second or so. And uh, to, to keep everything attached when there's distortion like that, it would be very, very difficult. You'd have to have something that's either very flexible that could take it or something that's going to have alternative attach points, you know, basically uh, some kind of strap or something that would keep it if it happens to come off. As as a matter of practicality, I think it would be very difficult to do. But, uh, you know, the, the best thing to do is just try to make the engines as reliable as possible when it comes to this sort of thing. That's where it starts.
1: And the other thing, Mike, we talked about was that, Yeah, the board's investigation is going to have to try and find out, of course, what the failure mode was. It's kind of obvious that it was a fan blade that initiated this whole sequence. The question being, though, is did a fan blade come out sufficiently in front of the engine to cut that inlet ring? And the separation of that inlet ring was that the beginning at the end for the engine colling. Because of aerodynamic forces, given the fact the airplane's moving, you know, through the air at 250 300 miles an hour, you know, all the aerodynamic forces then rip that entire cowling off off that engine. Are there any parameters in the certification criteria to account for aerodynamic forces causing the separation of the cowling, or is it purely just we're going to mount it to an engine, secure it, and if it stays intact? under normal operating conditions.
2: That's pretty much it. You know, I think uh, the interface between airframe and engine has to be dealt with in some way, which results in uh, different configurations of the cowlings. And uh, as far as aerodynamic stuff is concerned, you know, looking at that ring, the inlet ring, I would agree that it was probably a blade. I mean, it looks like it's a relatively clean cut. It's ragged, but it certainly isn't a break. And it did not come from impact with the ground. In fact, the whole thing, if it were to be, uh, if it were to be damaged in any way, or disfigured, it would be obvious. But it just looked like the complete piece with a nice, clean cut in it. As far as aerodynamics is concerned, for the most part, other than what they need to do to uh, develop the interface issues, you know, electric, hydraulic, fuel, and so on. It's really just a matter of efficiency, which goes back to the three criteria that airframers are concerned with for the most part.
1: And then with regard to the materials, we had a residual fire that apparently couldn't be extinguished through conventional means when the crew pulled the fire handles. A lot of it was because the uh, engine calling had separated, which, as you talked about in the certification criteria, apparently is an integral part of the effectiveness of a uh, fire suppression system. Is there now, is this worth really looking at to see if maybe this isn't the best case that we're going to have to come up with an alternative means for fire suppression in the event the calling is lost?
2: Well, that I mean, are be- these
1: rare events that, I mean, you know, you and, and John and myself have been around the business long enough. Yes, we have some of these events. Yes, they are rare events. And they don't warrant a long term requirement because they are so rare. Is this one of those rare events so that we don't change the criteria? Or is this something that really should be looked at? Because while it did happen this time, who knows if it'll ever happen again? We all know it will because it's aviation, but.
2: Yeah. It's not a matter of if, but when. Because, you know, part 33 requires a containment test. It's absolutely essential to actually test the blade out. With these things and if the FAA were to accept probabilities they probably would not get to the point where they expect a probability of one so let's separate this into two different sections first of all it's an extremely rare event we know that if all the hours and miles that are flown around the world it doesn't really happen very often the other part that we need to address i think is should we examine it and i think First of all, we have to do the best we can to increase the reliability of these things. And second, I don't think we should use the rarity of these events as a reason not to take a look at what happened. And from my own experience, when an engine manufacturer has an event like this, they're all over it. They're really concerned about these things because they do not want to see their name in the paper. Pratt & Whitney all over the place. I did a Google search this morning and uh, Pratt & Whitney was, geez, saw their name probably 100 times and it was not beneficial to their image.
1: And in your experience with uh, with aircraft certification, and especially uh, in the power plant section, John and I have talked about it. Other experts that we've talked with have talked about it. And that is this uh, phenomenon of this blade having come forward in the engine when it's separated. You know, Did it come forward and cut the ring and then distort the, uh, the engine nacelle? or cowling sufficiently to cause it to separate or was that did that blade hit the containment ring ricochet around come out damage it I know that in the past there have been tests and that kind of stuff for bird strikes because that's always a big concern ingesting birds tearing up the front end of that engine causing a, uh, a catastrophic failure of some sort of the engine and they were talking about putting screens on the front of the engine keep birds out but do we go back and look at screens on the front of an engine to keep blades in if they fail like this
2: Oh, already a screen in front of an engine would turn into nothing more than a drag machine that's all it would yeah. do things and, and, and
1: that's it. always been the argument is you couldn't get the necessary airflow through it if you need right. something like that so again these are a rare events and And do we have to try and regulate for these rare events? Because the industry starts screaming every time we change the regulations because of one or two or three events like this.
2: That's kind of a toughie. I think as I was sort of looking into this thing, it occurred to me that fans are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I think uh, the next Pratt & Whitney fan size is going to be like 132 inches. uh, Yeah, that's huge. And, the regulations for containment, fan blade containment, uh, as originally envisioned, may not have seen fans that are this big. And it may not be a bad idea just to take a good hard look at this thing. The requirement, again, assumes that there's a probability of one that this will happen. And is it worth looking at again? Because, you know, we know, especially the fan blade, if a fan blade actually gets cut loose in some way and is not stopped or at least slowed down, the fuselage is nothing it goes they like butter. You no know, it's just there's yeah. nothing to stop it there's a lot of energy in those things so that goes back to what i said just now about uh, taking another look at it. let's just examine the whole thing and this might be a good time to uh, provide some folks with a little bit of incentive
0: to do just that yeah they talked about the containment ring not being large enough on the engine failure in uh, hawaii on this blade failure in Hawaii in 2018. And there was a lot of discussion around enlarging the containment ring in width from front to back, not making it so much thicker, but just more coverage, more area to capture the blade. And there's arguments on both sides of that, pros and cons. So I don't know where that's going to end up. But they did say that the NTSB did say in the preliminary meeting that this blade, either one of the two, either the full blade that, that left or the half blade that left, did strike the containment ring. It did penetrate into it quite a way, but they weren't clear in the description, the chairman somewhat wasn't clear in the description, whether or not that blade was captured. And looking at the pictures, it doesn't appear to have been captured. You can see some damage in the containment ring where it was obviously hit but there doesn't appear to be a blade there unless it's just a small piece of the blade. Then it begs the question, where did that big blade and the, and the remaining piece of the blades go? You know, Did it go forward as they have in the two previous cases, one in Hawaii and the one in Japan? In both of those forward, they have a fancy term for it called it an arc, which is a curvature, departure, and it goes forward. So those two phenomena have occurred already. That's a given. We know them, that that exists, and that's what happens. And that would lend itself to the theory that the one or more of these blades went forward, caused the damage to the nose cowl area, and maybe even cut that ring, which would just totally destroy the nose cowl and, and have it disintegrated the way we see it.
2: Yeah, once the nose ring is gone, I mean, everything behind it just gonna, it's going to be nothing more than drag inducement leading edges. You know, almost certain. I can't see how a column could actually remain intact when the leading edge is effectively taken out. And, you know, if we talk about capturing blades, we have to ask ourselves, what would the reasoning be for that? I mean, it's one thing to be able to stop it and take care of basically dissipate the rotational energy, uh, but it would really be necessary to capture it. And I think I could make an argument that it's not really necessary because the probability of the greatest damage has been reduced
0: significantly, simply by stopping you know, dropping the energy of the, the escape blade. There's going to be a lot of discussion around containment rings, I'm sure, in not only Hartford, Connecticut with Prattford, Pratt & Whitney, but it's also going to be at GE and all the other engine manufacturers because this is a problem that all of them are faced with.
2: on the ground, Canadian
0: 920. We're just coming
2: up to Juliet. A920, runway 248 taxi. Right. Right. Now, you guys remember Lauda, right? It was the 767 that uh, had an in-flight deployment of a thrust reverser. Yes. And uh, right after that happened, the transport, FA transport directorate uh, manager, Leroy Keith was his name, he ordered a summit of all engine and major airframe manufacturers to get together and, by God, fix this thing. And because it was... That must have been a horrible ride down to the ground for that to happen. People don't want that. Obviously, we don't want that. So if it turns out that this is a significant enough problem, then there is no doubt in my mind industry will come together to try to fix it, whether it's voluntarily or whether it's a command performance, I guess you might say. It's got to be dealt with. What goes goes, takes us back to let's not ignore this. Let's look into this and find out what happened and, and see if there's any sort of trend.
1: Mike, um, John and I uh, had the good fortune of interviewing John Allen, a former colleague of yours at the FAA. And when we had John on, one of the questions I brought up with him is, given the fact that the regulations, and you just brought it up in your conversation, and that is the regulations were formulated a long time ago. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. they evolved, you know, in the 40s and 50s, they were solidified in the late 50s. And they have been tweaked over the years. But is it time for a wholesale review where the FAA puts a team together and they look to review all the regulations and update them rather than just keep adding to them or, you know, tweaking them, literally just do a wholesale review and change to upgrade them to the 21st century?
2: (laughs) That's a really interesting question. First of all, they did that with Part 23 for small airplanes not too long ago. The latest amendment, 64, essentially just has a performance-based regulations. I guess you might say, if you want to build an airplane that's going to do this, just be sure that it's going to be adequately safe in these areas, rather than try to address the airplanes by part and system and so on, rather than break the airplanes down into its components. Now they were looking at the thing more holistically, I guess you might say, and it may not be a bad idea. You know, honestly. Uh, John and I, we did an Arec, the rulemaking committee for part 25 and 23. And even that didn't really work very well, because even with Arec, with public input, a typical new rule is going to take five to 10 years minimum to change a single paragraph. And that just doesn't make sense. It wouldn't, I think it would be a really good idea to do just that. And also, let's not forget technology. Looking at these blades, is there a way that technology can actually start to predict Uh, What might be happening? Can technology somehow look at these blades or actually look at the entire engine, the health of the engine, in in a manner that's uh, all-encompassing front to rear? I think with computing as it is these days, uh, the software and the inspection hardware and so on, it seems to me that uh, there's probably a way to make that happen. And it's not a bad time to start to take a good hard look in the limit. There's one regulation, Part 25, 25.1309, which a lot of us are familiar with. That's the regulation that says uh, there shall be no less than 10 to the negative ninth probability of having a catastrophic failure of an airplane. So, what that means is you can almost develop and design and certificate an airplane front to rear with just that one rule, just that one rule. Just say here's the probabilities that uh, you will not exceed, and Go fly, go make it happen and show us how you did it.
0: Airport
1: And Mike, with what you were just talking about, uh, you know, with the technology, is there and and did the FAA look at We see sensors on. I drive a Volvo, I got sensors everywhere on my car, and and so does everybody else to tell us when the tire pressure goes down and things like that. Is there a way to embed any kind of technology into these blades that provides a maintenance technician through query? Or even a flight crew through an iCast type message that hey, there's an imminent failure occurring, or there's a crack or a discontinuity going on in the engine, other than you know having the instrumentation tell you the engine has failed. Well, it's kind of obvious when that <laughs> happens, and, yeah. and everything and everything just confirms it. Rather than uh, being more preventative or at least forward looking, so that hey, it's obvious that. The blade, it's got all of these uh, sensors in each of these blades and it looks like one of the blades has some sort of
2: discontinuity to it that could be predictive in a failure. That's a toughie. I mean, well, first of all, let's take a look at what you mentioned about uh, low tire pressure in your vehicle. How does that happen? How do they do that? Is there a sensor inside the wheel? that let you know that there's a pressure drop. How does the information get from this wheel that's turning and turning to the vehicle's brain, you know, to the computer. It would be a very similar thing that you could do with turbine blades. Now, you know, turbine blades are different. I'm pretty sure they don't deteriorate slowly and go from 100% strength to 92% strength in seconds. You know, I'm sure, no, I beg your pardon. When they fail, they probably fail quickly. It doesn't necessarily give you much of an opportunity to catch it as it's deteriorating. However, if we don't try, we don't get. And it's not a bad idea to, I would imagine, I would hope, uh, Rolls, GE, and Pratt, for example, are taking a good hard look at what they might be able to do to help prevent these sort of things. They have huge incentives not to have these kind of events happen. Why would yeah. they not be looking at it? Now, and let's talk about computers. I mean, machine learning, artificial intelligence, so on and so forth, with more sensors out in the airplane, it's got to be a lot easier to try to figure out what's going wrong to the point where, Sometime in the not-too-distant future, you might actually have some pretty good predictive software. We know damn well that engines and airplanes and the whole thing, they're just nothing more than these neural systems flying through the air. There's a lot of stuff you can do these days that was never imaginable as recently as 10 to 20 years ago.
0: Let's not forget that this blade, and this engine in particular, is old technology. This engine, the 4084, there's four engines in the series, were designed in the early 90s. This was an option to put on the the very early 777s. In fact, this particular airplane was serial number four or five, I forget. But it was very early. It was one of the flight test airplanes. So the engines had to be ready before that airplane was. And uh, so that engine design has been around probably 30 years. So uh, technology 30 years ago, pales in comparison to what we have today and when, when we had this discussion uh, yesterday i went looking to see what kind of failures of blades have we had with the more modern generation of engines and we don't really have a lot we had the one on an a380 right? so we don't really have a lot of examples so maybe the technology has gone forward manufacturing and material technology has gone forward so that these bigger engines, newer engines, are not having that problem. But there's also a a huge difference between the amount of operating time this particular generation of engine has compared to the newer ones like the ones on the A380. So, you know, maybe 30 years from now, we'll be arguing the same problem on those engines.
1: (laughs) Mike, one of the things that John and I had talked about with uh, the engine calling in this particular event is basically the blessing that the cowling fell away from the aircraft underneath it. And while there were some residual pieces that apparently struck the underbelly of the aircraft, because we see damage to uh, some of the fairing, the fortunate thing is, is that inlet ring and in some of the larger pieces did not strike the aircraft. And and of course, you know one of the concerns is if those pieces had gone up and over the top of the wing, versus underneath the wing. Could they have struck the horizontal stabilizer? Could they have incapacitated the aircraft? And next thing you know, we're talking about a controllability issue and possibly even a different outcome Mm -hmm. of this event. Right. What is the concern or what is uh, the design criteria when you're looking at things like that? And is there anything incorporated, or is it just luck of the draw, the way things come apart?
2: You know, I can't really answer that. I can say that it's almost certain to me that the nacelles are not necessarily designed to come apart in a particular way. It's reasonable to expect a lot of it to go under the engine, the ring. When I try to imagine which way it went, I can't help but think it probably went over the top of the wing. And it's the engine out far enough. It's probably going to Anything comes off the engine is probably going to go straight back. It's probably not necessarily going to go inward. And I would imagine, I don't have a picture in my mind, but I would imagine the location of the engine is outboard of the tip of the tail. I would hope that would be the case. But that's, that's, that's only conjecture on my part. It is, gosh, again, we don't expect an airplane manufacturer to design for failure, failure modes, except for the case in, you know, for example, a turbine blade or a fan blade but historically i'm not too sure that we've had any debris impacting the horizontal stab Maybe be worth looking at
1: yeah i was just thinking you know in my infinite wisdom as uh as an investigator and you know walking outside look we put joints in concrete so that when it starts to crack it stops at that <laughs> that joint uh, mm-hmm. we stop drill cracks you know, whenever we see something in an airplane, you stop, drill it so that it doesn't propagate. Do you design in this cell or an engine cowling so that it has these, if it does start to peel, it peels to a certain point and then stops peeling, you know, in a prescribed manner versus ripping the whole damn thing off. Right. And like it did in this case and have it raining down with the potential for creating damage to the aircraft on its way off the airplane. I try to come up with these things, and John and I philosophize about these things, and I'm always thinking about, is that something that is just too far you know, out there to think about, or is that something that the board should be looking at in its overall investigation of not only what caused the blade to fail all of the the shadow or backstory things that took place with this particular event and others. Low speed aileron
0: normal and auto rudder travel pitch field, High. Nav exterior light, Servo control. Nine. Engine start panel. Rank it aboard. Fire handle. Seatbelt no sign High. exit minimum cabin alarms You know, I'm thinking in my mind. I'm thinking now of the cowling. The nose cowling is totally independent of the other cowling. So this, all this stuff in front of the engine, as we looked at it, in front of those fan blades, is its own entity. And then there's the first section from the front of the engine that goes back to the fan doors. And that is what we would call cowling.
1: Well, one of the things, Mike, that we were talking about is creating these engine nacelles or cowlings with prescribed failure points so that if something that starts to come apart in the front of the engine, in the front of the cowling, only uh, propagates back to one of these, you know, lack of better terms, a stop joint or something like that, so you don't lose the entire cowling and, and that kind of thing in a very dramatic way, like we saw with this latest event with the 777.
2: Mm-hmm. My vision of something like that would be uh, kind of sacrificial rings, you know, stacked up one after the other. If you use the first one, the second one would then be able to, you know, stay attached. If that were the case, we'd probably have to be streamlined in some way. And it may be possible, but that's about all I can say at this point. It's something that might be worth looking at. Again, let's go all the way back to part of our earlier conversation when we were talking about the notion of uh just taking a look at the whole thing. Is it time for us to start looking at mitigation for this sort of thing again on the probability yeah. that it's going to happen that it will happen at some point the ultimate corrective action would be just to have engines that never come apart yeah yeah
1: <laughs> that is wishful thinking john i know you had some thoughts on this
0: yeah i don't think it's possible to get an engine that is going to be 100 percent reliable given the temperatures that we're now pushing inside the engines but the cowling is definitely got three pieces to it you know we've got the nose cowling, and that's the piece on the Southwest adventures and uh, some other ones, the Hawaii United in Hawaii that took the brunt, but that's a separate system from the engine cowling. That's actually the inlet. It has sound suppression duties that it has to fulfill. It's also that metal ring in the front is to keep ice from forming on the front of it, which then would go into the engine and cause a whole bunch of problems. So it, that whole front section of the nose cowl has a distinct separate function from the next section back which is the engine cowling and that's where we have to maintain our our sealability so that our fire suppression works and then behind that is part of the thrust reverser and in this case they call them fan doors where the air from the fan which goes around the engine is allowed to exit off to the side instead of providing additional thrust for the engine and those things are big and heavy and i was surprised that they vacated the airplane the way they did because the attach points have to be pretty substantial more substantial than that relatively lightweight cowling that's in front of them so obviously between the shaking, and that was considerable shaking, and the airflow, those big heavyweight doors exited the airplane. So it's uh, rather unique. Three, three separate systems, three separate failures, all related to one event.
2: I'm glad you said systems because each one is a separate system, the thrust reverses especially. And I have a 100,000 pound thrust engine going into full reverse. Boy, that's a lot of force going into that aft section
1: yeah that is a lot of energy (laughs) redirected for sure Mm -hmm. is there any separation of criteria for these engine nacelles or collings on a uh, tail mounted engine airplane versus under wing engines
2: honestly i don't think uh, they're looked at any differently i think there's some things that uh, you might be able to get away with from having the engines mounted differently but uh you know, thrust reverser is a thrust reverser. and I mean, contained failure is exactly that, and so on. But you know, if let's take a look at a, you know, a DC nine or a 727 or one of those airplanes, there's very little doubt that uh, if you had pieces come off in a cell, it's not going to damage anything. It's just going to fall to the ground. Yeah. But I, I, what would happen in that case would be the manufacturer would sit down and talk to the FAA. They'd go through each individual regulation that would apply that to an engine installation and uh, discuss what they would have to do or not for each individual regulation. they break it down by word almost and try to figure out how they can achieve certification in the most expeditious and least expensive way but also will show compliance to the regulations.
0: Let's not forget the DC-10 and the center engine that resulted in that problem in Sioux City, Iowa. Boy, howdy. And how we had to... uh, the containment wasn't possible in that event, and uh, so we had to change the airplane, move hydraulic lines further apart mainly is uh, one of the things they did.
2: I think they put hydraulic fuses in as well, didn't
0: they? Yes, they did. Yes, they did. So any any uh, line breakage would, once the flow got beyond what they expected, it would shut it off. I'm hoping that they had some uh, hydraulic fuses here too, uh, good shutoffs, but anyway...
1: the one thing that i have heard you know just in talking to a variety of people in the industry is that airbus has had a number of cowling separations not due to any kind of engine related issue but rather it's uh, their latching system on their colleagues have you heard any of that mike
2: i have not i'm frankly i'm totally unfamiliar with uh, with the whole thing we know that uh, there have been issues similar to that in the past. You know, the uh, it was the was a Turkish Airlines out of Paris. It was a DC-10. They had trouble latching the cargo door. Something yeah. similar to the 747 out of Hawaii. You know, things that are transition. You know, from open to close. Frequently, uh, you got to be pretty careful about how you design those things. But I can't speak with any uh, knowledge about Airbus.
0: Yeah, I'm familiar with several of those cases. And initially we were blaming the individual maintenance people for not latching, the, latching it properly. And that may or may not have been the case in the beginning. But then after several of these events where the cowling left the airplane, added emphasis was uh, put on latching the cowling, including requiring, and some operators require, a separate non-related individual to go out and double check that those latches were on. And even then, they've had some failures. So it's probably a combination of a human being and a poorly designed latch. And I have read uh, not too long ago, in the last few months, that Airbus has actually got a, a redesigned latch and they're putting a warning switch on it. If it's not latched properly, it's going to put a light on in the cockpit
1: yeah because I remember when I was with the board and subsequent to my leaving, I've, uh, I've read reports and you know followed the industry. I know that Bombardier had a lot of problems with uh, cowling separations on the uh, RJs and that kind of thing. And while these are, you know, rare events where you have a cowling separation due to the failure of the engine, that's the precipitating factor. Collings do separate from, from engines and, and aircraft for other
0: reasons. Yeah. You know, and you know, I'm thinking back of my DC nine days and I have actually been around long enough to see, at least three airplanes come in to Boston where I worked with the cowlings unlatched from a previous station. And I'm not clear how many, I don't remember at this point, how many, was it one leg, more than one leg? But they came in on a latch because McDonnell Douglas at the time put a secondary latching system in there that required, it was Murphy proof. When you push the cowling up in place, the secondary latch engaged first. You, you had to do nothing to it. It just engaged. And then you put the, there was uh, four or five latches. You put those, engaged those, and, put, and locked them in place. But the secondary latch was there, and I have seen airplanes come in with cowling that's just secured by the secondary latch, at least, uh, at least a couple. So, you know, sometimes they, in the effort to save weight, On airplanes, we might save weight in the wrong location, too. Hmm.
1: Yeah, well, this kind of event has prompted me to uh, put on my invention cap. I'm going to create a hydraulically operated Kevlar umbrella that you can instantaneously deploy over your house. So in case parts fall <laughs> off. <laughs> if you live under Boy. the flight path. <laughs> That's right. If you're under the flight path of an aircraft, you can pop this thing up instantaneously. So you don't have parts raining down on your
0: house.
2: we so. talk about probabilities of one. Holy cow.
1: <laughs> well, Mike, it, uh, it, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. And uh, John and I always look for subject matter experts who are smarter than us. We make them the friend of our show. So, guess what? You've been tagged as a friend of the show. So, that means you, <laughs> you're going to be called upon for your high levels of expertise to, uh, to keep John and I in line. So, we, uh, we appreciate you being on the show today and educating us. That, you know, I mean, these are the kinds of issues people think, ah, eh, that's boring. What does that have to do with anything? But it really is a large part of not only this investigation that the board is conducting on the United Airlines 777, but in our business, it is these little things that end up causing the most damage, and in some cases, even the fatalities. So we have to look at everything from a global perspective and, and try to mitigate things going forward, if not eliminate the risk that is involved, and and while yeah, it's an engine calling it's made of honeycomb fiberglass. Big deal. Those become lethal weapons, if you will, not only to the aircraft, to incapacitate it, but as we saw in this neighborhood, you had people outside that, if they were struck by any of these parts, they could have right. been seriously injured or killed. So right. it is an important subject, and that's why we try to bring this to our listeners. Is uh, again, it's all about education and really understanding the backstory and the requirements and things like that. But John and I also take the opportunity to talk about things that we as investigators would consider looking at if we were doing the investigation. So we appreciate uh, you chiming in with your expertise to give us a little better perspective today.
2: Well, thank you very much, gentlemen. Uh, I really appreciate being made a friend of this podcast. I've never had such a scary pleasure. (laughs) Yeah,
1: well, you can't change your phone number. We'll track you down. We're investigators, man.
2: (laughs) We know where you live. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I'm gonna. I just do a virtual rope a dope. John's had trouble finding me in the past.
1: (laughs) We have people, Mike. We have
2: people.
1: (laughs) (sighs) Well, John, thanks for bringing Mike on board. And, you know, I think it was a good discussion today. And again, we try to bring these things to you the listener to give you a different perspective, because accident investigation in a variety of different forms. Yes, there is the, the dramatic that is the big catastrophic type accident and, and that kind of event that takes place where that gets a lot of notoriety, gets a lot of airplay in the media and that kind of stuff. And it was interesting to me that there was so much airplay on this particular event. I think, it, of course, it's because a lot of the stuff came raining down over a neighborhood on a weekend. And, and of course, with uh, with all the video that ended up surfacing and pictures, the drama of having an engine that let go and the residual fire and, and all of that kept it playing in the news cycle. but. It doesn't go away. It's now up to investigators to try and find out what happened and how we're going to prevent it in the future from happening again. But as we've talked, there are these other issues that need to be addressed. How do we enhance safety, whether it's to put out a residual fire or do we build better cowlings so that we don't have these separations that could cause uh, potential harm? So, John, I think it was a great discussion today, and I look forward to, as I always do, our future episodes of, of Flight Safety Detectives. But we appreciate you, the listener, and your feedback, because that gives us a gauge as to the things that we're trying to educate you on. So please give us your feedback, give us your comments, your questions, and that kind of thing so that we can take them forward into future shows. And uh, you can always contact us via our email at flight safety detectives with an S at gmail.com and john and i try to answer all those emails directly we talk about a lot of the stuff on the air as well so we greatly appreciate you listening and and of course we always appreciate the fact that we have you our audience to give us the direction of this show so again thank you very much for that and we also want to thank our sponsors pama and Avemco.
0: yes and remember, if you're in the market for insurance, whether you're renewing or you're buying a new airplane, or if you're a flight instructor that needs to have insurance or a pilot that needs rental insurance, just give Avemco a call. Eight 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 seven nine O three eight nine. You'll get yourself a five percent discount for just mentioning flight safety detectives.
1: and i know that you know we're cutting into your mojito time so <laughs> <laughs> because you are a health freak with citrus so i don't want to i don't want to take you away from that <laughs> that part of your exercise routine so with that as i always do i will leave you my friend with the last words
0: okay today i have a couple of extra last words All right. The first one, to all the maintenance people out there that are listening, there is some noise being leaked out of this investigation that maybe, just maybe, a couple of the inspectors that had been working on these blades, not this particular blade, but in general the blades, may have had some issues with performing the inspections. So if you are an inspector or an AI or a maintenance guy doing an inspection, pay attention to the details, please. Follow the instructions. You're required to follow the instructions. The instructions will keep you out of trouble. So please pay attention. And for all of us listening, we're still not out of this, this problem with this COVID virus. So in our personal lives, please stay safe. Wash your hands. Wear the mask. Don't, don't hang around in large crowds. Don't eat inside buildings. Avoid the crowds. Please. And if you're going to go flying, again, pay attention to the details before you even get into the airplane. Do a very thorough pre-flight. And if you haven't flown for a while, maybe you want to fly with somebody who has. But please, please fly safe. To listen to more episodes
1: of the show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at pama.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John
0: Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.